uh, spend a little bit of time uh, with this, uh, many in this group of people. I see lots of uh, new faces I do not know as well. Uh, before David came, uh, there was a transition time, and so I had an opportunity to help lead the church uh, during that time. Uh, since then, I've been pastoring uh, in a little town uh, to the west of here in Bristow. Uh, I've since resigned that job, and uh, so now I'm just a scooter guy. I pick up all those green scooters that are around town and uh, enjoy that, but I do that, like the opportunity to come and share, and so we're going to do that today. Um, I'm going to take you back in, in, in history in a lot of ways today. We're going to look back as we look at what's the church been like in the past, but I'm going to take you back to a little my own history. The year was 1989, and uh, I was a senior in college. I went to Yale University out on the East Coast, and I'll take, tell you just a, in a minute a little bit about that place. Um, but I had developed some really good friends during my times there on campus, and I had two people in particular uh, that I became really close to. One ended up becoming my wife, uh, Kathy, uh, who obviously is here today. Uh, and another one was uh, a friend of mine named Steve. Uh, we actually had an opportunity to do some hiking together. I hadn't seen Steve in probably 20, 25 years. And, and last summer, uh, we spent some uh, time on the Appalachian Trail with him. Uh, but the three of us decided during that year, my senior year is Kathy's junior year, uh, that we were going to kind of make a pact between us because we were looking at our campus. We got involved and engaged in some campus ministry, and it was good for us, and we enjoyed it uh, on a big night. And we were like one of the biggest campus uh, Christian groups on campus. We would have like 10 to 15 people show up at Campus Crusade for Christ. That kind of tells you about the uh, spiritual makeup of what was happening during those years at Yale University. Um, and so we thought, you know, God wants to do something in this place, and we want to see that happen, but we're not exactly sure what we should be doing. And so we talked about it, and we decided what needs to happen is some people need to step forward and start to pray. And so we decided that at 11 p.m., at night, throughout that year, now we didn't do it every night, but we did it lots and lots and lots of nights, we would show up at this little chapel on the campus of, uh, was called Old Campus uh, of Yale University, and we would go into this chapel, and yes, we spent some time laughing, and we spent some time telling stories, but we also spent a good deal of time praying for revival for our campus. And we believe that that was something that needed to happen there. And so as we began to do it, we had great hopes that God was going to move and we were going to see something spectacular. And so the months proceeded. I remember many times at 11 p.m. trudging through the snow to get there to uh, enjoy our time and pray together. Uh, I remember when spring came, we would go. And during that whole time of going and praying and seeking the Lord, saying, Lord, we want revival to come. Nothing I mean, nothing happened. And it's one of those things, you're like, we, we committed to this, Lord. We, we believed this was of you, and so we believed you were going to bring about revival. And I got to see absolutely nothing take place that year. I graduated, went off to uh, New York, uh, outside New York City, and, and uh, taught high school for a few years. Obviously, Kathy and I had begun dating, and uh, we were uh, making plans to uh, be married the following summer, so I could kind of keep up with what was happening on, on campus, along with going back to see her quite often there in New Haven. 
And lo and behold, in that next year, the hand of God began to move. And what turned into, or what used to be a group of like 10 to 15, all of a sudden became a group of 70. At times, 100 people would gather as revival began to come to that group of people. And they began to reach out and they began to invite their friends. And all of a sudden, there was a spark of the hand of God at work. I didn't get to be a part of any of it. I just heard about it vicariously. And there were times I wanted to go, yeah, but that happened partly, it's all God's work, but partly because we decided to go and pray. And so now I get to tell people like you, and those people don't even uh, know what took place when those awesome years of what was taking place in uh, Campus Crusade at Yale University. I, 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 I tell you that story as I think about it, I believe there are some things that have to take place, God has set it up this way, before revival or before his hand begins to move upon people. It's, it's evident quite often all the way throughout the scriptures. You know, sometimes we, we get this idea that God wants to do something and boom, he just absolutely makes it happen. Now, he can do that and we do see some examples of that. But most of the time, when God is about transforming the lives of people, it's because people have responded to him, they've stepped forward, and then he comes and brings about the sense of revival or the moving of God or the hand of God that is present. And so as I begin to think about this, I wanted to say, well, what, how would we describe it? What words could we use to talk about what that thing is? There's a biblical word, and sometimes I think we in the church are scared of biblical words. You know, sometimes they're like, you know, sanctification, I don't know about it. That's a, that's a big, fancy word. Let's, let's just simply put that off to the side, and maybe we'll try and talk about the concept a little bit. Sometimes we need to talk about the biblical words. And that word I want to talk about today is the word consecration. When you think of consecration, we don't use it very much anymore, but every so often you might hear they decided to consecrate something, and so we, there might be a church building that they consecrate. It means they take it and they set it apart. It, it's no longer just part of the secular, but we'll take a church building and consecrate it as if that, that somehow makes that building holy. And there will also be times of deconsecration where if the church is going to get torn down, this especially happens in what we may call high church uh, groups. Or they tear a church down, there's a deconsecration of the building. Well, I don't have any problem with do doing that for a building or a home or something else that might be a physical item that you have. But I think the biblical emphasis on consecration is you. You are called to at times consecrate yourselves, set yourself apart as holy, as different, as being somebody who is set apart for the works and service of God so that you might then see the hand of God move in you. Now, as we think about this, we're going to look today in the book of Joshua. And so if you have your Bibles, you can begin to turn there into Joshua chapter 3, verse 5. And I want you to think for just a moment as you're turning there 
about times in your past, if you have a past with the church, if you go way back, and there might be times you look and say, wow, it seemed like at this particular moment in time, God was really moving. Uh, uh, or, or, or maybe at this particular even event, God was really moving. What preceded that, if you can think about those, those things that happened at that time? You know, were, was there a commitment by people? Were, were people able to step out of the ordinary and to say, there's going to be something different here? We're willing to take some steps to see what God wants to do in us and in this place. In the book of Joshua, in chapter uh, 3, we see the story come about. It's a story that you might think, oh yeah, yeah, I heard that before, because I know about when people cross a body of water and, and uh, it, God does amazing things. Wasn't Moses part of that story where, where God was able to kind of separate the waters and the people walked across on dry ground? There is a story like that about Moses. Uh, if you've been around the church, you probably heard that a lot. In fact, if you were uh, Jewish and you would look back in your history, that was actually the seminal moment in history where there were the children of Israel that had lived for 400 years in the land of Egypt. Much of that time they lived as slaves. And God said, I'm not content with this. I'm going to bring these people out of bondage in Egypt and I'm going to have them go take of a promised land that I'm going to give them. And so Moses did take the, those children of Israel out of Egypt. They came to this Red Sea. They were stuck. They had the Egyptian army that was chasing them. They had the Red Sea in front of them, and there was no way out until God told Moses, go ahead and part the Red Sea. Take your rod, and you can part that sea. And the children of Israel went across on dry ground. Eventually, the sea came back over, and the Egyptians were no more to continue chasing them. Now, you might think something like that would cause you to be somebody who says, I'm going to follow this God forever. If he can part the Red Sea, he's one that I want to stay on his good side. Now, that's the story we get told in Sunday school classes, if you were part of those kinds of things in the past, or maybe in Bible studies, we'll bring that up. But there's another time on that same journey where God did the same kind of thing. This one took place after 40 years. Now, so one, sometimes we develop a, a, a thought process, or we might even call it a theology, that says God's just going to, boom, get in and do what he wants. If he wants something done, he's just going to make it happen. Well, you know what God wanted done when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he wanted those children to go right to the promised land. He wanted them to leave Egypt, go to the promised land, take over the promised land, be people who live there in this land which is flowing with milk and honey, as the scriptures tell us. And guess what happened? Not that. They didn't go right to the promised land. They decided they were going to be disobedient in all kinds of ways. In fact, they got scared and said, no, we don't want anything to do with that. And God finally said, Fine, you're going to spend some time wandering here in the desert. In fact, he was so upset and ticked off, he decided all of you who felt that way, this whole generation of adults who felt that way, guess what? You're going to wander and wander and wander and wander, and then once you've died off, I'm going to take a new generation into the promised land. There were only two people, adults, that had left Egypt 
that eventually entered into the promised land. Caleb and the author of this book, Joshua. These were people who had great faith. Not even Moses entered into the promised land. He came to the very edge. He came to the very precipice. But because of some of the disobedience that he had, God said, this is your time. You will die here. You can see the promised land. You can look over the cliffs and look across the Jordan River and see it, but you will not enter into it. And the leadership mantle is going to be passed on to Joshua. And he will be the one to take my people into the land. But they had to cross the Jordan River to get there. And the Jordan River at this particular time was at flood stage. How are you going to get this massive, perhaps millions of people, across this flooded Jordan River? There's no bridges or anything. And so God devises a plan, and that's what we're going to see in Joshua chapter 3. The word of the Lord comes to us and says this, starting in verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp. Give orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Now just quickly, the, the, the ark is thinking of it as this kind of wooden box and there were very special things put in it like the Ten Commandments and you know, Moses' staff and those kinds of things were very special things were put in this ark. It symbolized the presence of God. And so they were, people were supposed to follow the ark. Then he goes on to say this, Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. God was such an amazing, powerful God, you couldn't get just simply too close. And listen to this. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant, pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the people said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the names of all of Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Hamorites, and Jebusites. See the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters will flow downstream. Or its waters flowing downstream will be cut off, and it will stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their foot, feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. 
It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, this is your word. We revere it today. We uplift it today. And Lord, it's a wonderful story of the history of your people. But God, we know you want it to be more than a history book. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon this place. And that these ancient words of old, Lord, will be applied to our hearts. And yes, Lord, may we learn about this story of old, but may we recognize that the same God who did it before can come into our presence and through your people, through your obedient people, Lord, come and do amazing things that you will show us tomorrow. And so thank you for speaking to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as we think about these folks, and we think about them preparing to cross the Jordan for what God had in mind, they were going to be people who began to see the hand of God and what he really wanted. They, 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 they knew that their parents hadn't done that. They knew that their grandparents hadn't done that. They knew that they had engaged in disobedience and gone their own way, and God says, now I'm going to give a new generation a chance. And so God wanted them to know, as they had this new chance, that he was going to go with them, that his presence with them would be unmistakable. And so he decides he's going to perform this miracle. He could have got them across in lots of different ways. He could have said, hey, my people are getting ready to cross over. I'm going to have a dry season. There's not going to be as much flooding, all those kinds of things. But he said, no, I want to take and I'm going to do this miracle so that they might know that I am the God of all heaven and earth. But they're going to have to get ready for it. And that's why, instead of just, boom, doing the miracle, he has the people, the leaders go throughout the camps and say, you need to consecrate yourselves for the Lord is going to do amazing things tomorrow. Now, the, I don't know about you. When I read the scriptures, sometimes I get all kinds of questions in my mind. You know, it's kind of like, uh, as I was reading this story, and I've never preached on this passage before, and so I, I hadn't really thought through uh, this a lot, but as I read the story, it began to, to dawn on me th this question. What if they didn't consecrate themselves? I mean, what if they just said, yeah, yeah, we hear that. We really don't, we don't need to do whatever that consecration thing is. We, 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 we're just here. We'll do whatever God, you know, if he says go, we'll go. But we won't do that consecrating thing. Would God had, had the priests go in with the Ark of the Covenant? Would, would the people eventually have walked across on, on, on dry ground? I don't know. If I look at the whole story, I would probably say no. Because once again, at the start of the story, his plan was that they would just go right to the promised land. 
And so he eventually said, no, you're not going to go right to the promised land because you're disobedience. And so if the people were going to be disobedient again, I don't think we would have this story in the scriptures. But they decided that they were going to listen and they were going to consecrate themselves. Now some of you might be sitting here thinking, what in the world does that even mean to consecrate yourself? Literally, it once again, it means to take something that is just part of the, the secular world and somehow be able to see it as being something special and holy, something that is going to be ultimately pleasing to God, performed in such a way that it becomes pleasing to God. And so these people were told, Go consecrate yourself. Now, they knew, and we know from other Old Testament passages, that there's very, some, some very specific things that they were asked to do. And part of that uh, was washing. You know, the, the, these are people who are in a desert region. You didn't get a shower every night. You didn't get a shower every week. You didn't get a bath, or you didn't get to go into a river and clean yourself. It wasn't part of their whole process. I mean, we're talking probably, for most people, from what we know, it would be months and months and months before they would take a bath or even get into a river to clean up because of the scarcity of water. And so one of the issues of consecration is, no, you go and you clean yourself up you go and you take those dirty and filthy clothes. Can you imagine? I've hiked with my wife, and we will go like four, five, six, seven days. I can't believe she can even stand me after that long, being out in the woods, not having any way to, to clean ourselves. Um, I probably shouldn't say this, but probably the most gross thing about that is when we would get to a hotel after a number of days, and this is for me particularly, she would take my socks, and we were too cheap to go to the laundromat, and we would just wash in the, in the uh, hotel sink, and it would probably be like 10 washings before they became anything that was like clear coming out of them. I mean, that's what these people were. They were just incredibly dirty, and so part of consecration was getting cleaned up. And so they needed to wash and clean themselves and one, one of the other issues that we know from and I won't dwell on this point but they needed to abstain from sexual relations that was part of the consecration for whatever time uh, they were going to be going through this period of consecration and it surely meant because these Old Testament people understood this it meant offering sacrifices it means taking something that they could ultimately sacrifice to the Lord now in the New Testament, we see the transformation of this uh, concept of consecration to where now that sacrifice is no longer some animal. The ultimate sacrifice was done in Jesus, but we are called to present ourselves as living sacrifices unto the Lord. Not only did we see that in the discussion of Jesus and what he told people, but we see it from Paul. In the book of Romans, in chapter 12, verse 1, when we think about this issue of consecration, he wrote these words, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper 
worship. And so when we think about who we are in relation to God, He is the God who has preceded us. He he has already given us grace, and now He wants us to recognize in the view of this amazing grace that He has provided to us, we are now called to present ourselves as living sacrifices. You know, sometimes we get this idea once again that, that it's, just, it's just all God. We don't really have a role in this. That, 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 that God does and takes care of everything. And so, you know, we're just supposed to be along for the party. We're just supposed to be grateful and thankful. And, just, and I don't really think that's New Testament Christianity or even Old Testament ways of worshiping God. There is a role for us. Joshua says, consecrate yourselves. The Apostle Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God. All of that tends to precede seeing the amazing works of God in our lives. You know, I I come and this, this, this group has some rootage in what we might call the Church of God Reformation Movement. And part of the old school teaching on that was that there really are two acts of grace. The first one is when we get saved. That, 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 that God comes, we, have, we recognize you know, we have been sinners, but God has this wonderful salvation he wants to offer us. And so we make a decision to step across the line of faith and and God comes and and, uh, through his work, he transforms us into his children. We become right with him. Once again, a fancy biblical word for that would be justification. We become justified or right with God. Now, you tell me, and I do want to cut just a couple responses here. Why do most people or many people get saved. I mean, what is the overarching issue when they say, you know, I want to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. I, I want to ask Jesus into my life. Why do a lot of people do that? I want to get to heaven. I mean, that's, a, that's what it is for a lot of folks. You know what, heaven is this awesome, wonderful thing. I want to be righteous or right with God so I have access to heaven. And the other side of that might be, I've heard about hell. I don't want to go there. And so maybe you get some hellfire and brimstone kind of preaching, and so you, you hear that and you decide, I need to get saved because I want to avoid that place. Why else do people come into relationship with Jesus? It's not just heaven and hell. What's that? Fear. Lots of times fear. And it can be a fear of the future, maybe fear of what's going on in our world. Sometimes there's a fear that comes. Anyone else? Why do people decide, I want to get right with God? For a lot of people I've seen, it's because, and it has a little bit to do with fear, it's, it's what's going on in their lives at the moment. Lots of times it's a health issue. You know, I, 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 I know that I've got some really bad stuff going on, and I think I've heard that this God can do something in me, and so I want to get right with him. You know, all of those things, and hear me out here, I would classify as selfish reasons for getting saved. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. I want to be healed of whatever the issue might be. I want to have peace and not fear. 
All of those things are something that, that, that simply I want. And you know what God does with those selfish reasons? He accepts them. He says, I know who you are as people, and I know that this is a motivating force, and I accept that I am still going to shower you with my grace. But I believe that even once that takes place, that over time we begin to recognize, but this, this relationship with Jesus should be about so much more than just going to heaven or avoiding hell or whatever the other selfish issues might be. It, it, it's got to be something where I actually desire and want more than anything the presence of Jesus. That, that, that's what I ultimately want in my, in, in, in my being. I want that day to day. I want to be able to walk with him and talk with him as the old hymn tells us. We want his presence, not just for ourselves, but because we want to bring pleasure to him. We want to please him. And that's a step away from just pure selfishness becoming a bit like Jesus, which is selfless. And again, in our movement, we've talked about that's a second step. That's a second recognition. And God then, once we recognize we just want the presence of Jesus, we want to walk away from the things of, of the world, we want to be people who are in just total communion with him. That's a second work of grace that God says, now I am going to give you my perfect love. I'm going to fill your heart with my spirit so that you do have my presence. And when you have that presence, you just may begin to see God do some amazing things in your life. Once again, you don't do it for the amazing things, but you do it to experience the presence of Jesus. And I think that's what our world and our churches need. We need people who are willing to consecrate themselves, who are willing to say, here I am as a living sacrifice, every part of my being for you because I desperately want your presence. Going way back, even before the time of Jesus, we see a story that illustrates this. It's a story about Socrates. It is said that a dispassionate young man approached the Greek philosopher and casually said, Oh, great Socrates, I come to you for knowledge. The philosopher took the young man down to the sea, waded in with him, and then dunked him under the water for 30 seconds. When he let the young man up for air, Socrates asked him to repeat what he wanted. And he said, I want knowledge, O great one. Socrates put him under the water again, only this time a little longer. After repeated dunkings and responses, the philosopher asked, What do you want? And the young man finally gasped, Air. I want air. Good, answered Socrates. Now when you want knowledge as much as you want it air, you shall have it. When you want Jesus, not just a little bit of Jesus, 
But when you want your heart to be so transformed that the things that he desires and he wants are the things that you now desire and you want. When you are saying, I don't want Jesus to have just a little bit of me, I want him to have all of me. It is then that you can have this presence of Jesus. But there's a step you have to take to see that happen. That doesn't happen for people who just want to sit back and say, well, I just want to enjoy watching the things of God go by. For you, my friends, you have to be engaged in consecrating yourself. Maybe you say, yeah, yeah Pastor, uh, you know, I, I, I did that long ago, and you may have been part of another Christian group or maybe part of the, this Church of God Reformation movement. Like, yeah, I, I, I made that, that, that kind of decision long ago. But honestly, I'm not really living in the midst of that right now. We'll make that decision again. Do it again. Say, oh God, here I am. And I know that there's some things that may get in the way. And I've been letting them get in the way. They may even be sins that I know that have stopped me from completely experiencing this presence. And so, God, I open myself up to you. And I say, come into my heart wholly and completely with your Holy Spirit. Perfect your love in me. So that I might be able to see you and be part of your kingdom team. Not just somebody who sits on the sideline waiting for heaven, but somebody who believes those words of Joshua, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things. I believe that's true of you as people, as individuals. And I think one of the reasons that we just live and look like the world is because we haven't stepped forward and said, here I am to consecrate myself. And in so doing, we've missed not only the blessings of God, but we've just missed, missed his presence. And what's true of individuals is also true of our churches. We need churches who say that we're sold out, that there's nothing more important than being part of God's team, being on this kingdom team and being in the presence of Jesus. But it takes people willing to step forward and say, here I am, God. I present myself as a living sacrifice to you. I give you access to every room. I give you access to that closet that I've had locked up that I really don't want you to see in. I open it all up and say, God, here I am. I consecrate myself for you. Would you please stand with me? Heavenly Father, We come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, we recognize that is the name that is above every name. And Lord, we also recognize, I imagine that there are a number of people, lots of people here who have 
at one time said yes to you and you, you came in and you saved them. But Lord, there's a number of us that haven't been walking this pathway of holiness. We haven't been walking, Lord, in this way where we are sold out for you completely. And so on this day, Lord, we come before you knowing that you and your presence are here in this place. And we want to make a commitment to you that we will follow you. We will offer up ourselves and say, oh God, take and use me. And take every wicked way in me, even those things that I don't necessarily want to let go, Lord. Help me to release them now. Take every wicked way in me, Lord. Throw it into your sea of forgetfulness. And allow me to experience your presence. Lord, you're good. And we love you. And we thank you that you don't leave us alone. But you help us to walk with you. In Jesus' name. Amen.